So, last summer, I made a decision that will last us for more than 10 years. You proud of me? I decided that uh, each summer when I have this four-week series, I want to try as best as I can to focus on one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. This summer, for four weeks, we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk. Uh, I did that for two reasons. One, because I don't want us to get to heaven and bump into these guys who wrote these little obscure books in the Old Testament get to heaven, bump into people like Habakkuk, and have to say, uh, uh, sorry, dude, never read your book. That'd be kind of embarrassing. But the other reason is because these books have such a rich message, and they just get overlooked. So we're going to look at this book of Habakkuk that lies towards the end of the Old Testament. It was written by a guy with a really weird name. Just have to admit that starting out. His writings have been misunderstood. They've been misappropriated to teach some really false ideas about God and his character and what he was trying to say. Some of the verses out of Habakkuk that you'll hear, you'll have heard before. They've been cherry-picked to say some things that Habakkuk really didn't say. And so what we'll discover is that his writing is actually much more textured, much more layered. Honestly, a lot of what he has to say is hard to hear, difficult. Almost from the very first words that Habakkuk writes, he unashamedly positions God's character as the central theme of the book. He dares to challenge God to say, Your behavior recently is out of line with what I understand about your character. He starts off in the second verse of the first chapter by saying, How long, Lord, am I going to have to call for help and you're not going to listen? Or cry out to you violence and you're not going to save? Why do you make me look at injustice, God? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked, they just hem in the righteous. So that justice, it's perverted. I think many of us have experienced periods in our life when we pray to God. And he breaks into our lives and he has power. He answers our prayers and he wins our trust and our faith grows and it's really, really strong. Those are good times. But the questions that Habakkuk raises in this little three-chapter book reflect the honest questions of people who deal with personal challenges, with difficulties, with disappointments in their life. And in those times, we want to know where God is. We want to know what he's up to. Habakkuk is a brave soul who dares to talk about those seasons in our life when chaos enters our world. When we feel darkness descending. When we cry out to God in our confused anguish. And God... God is just silent. 
So if you've ever been around somebody who's in deep pain or somebody who's suffering, you recognize that they really don't put up with a lot of small talk. I mean, they're going to jump straight into the stuff that matters. They're going to dive right into deep water. Habakkuk, when you look at the first chapter, the first words that he writes, you recognize that he is, his heart's breaking at the world around him and the suffering. Because what he does right off the bat is he dives right in. How long, Lord? How long am I going to call for help and you're not going to listen? Second verse, first chapter. He doesn't beat around the bush. Now, I want to give you fair warning in this first message. We're going to set up the series. We're going to lay out what he's going to deal with in the next three chapters. And in some of that, I'm going to do a little bit of history and I'm going to do a little bit of theology. Now, I'm not going to dive real deep. I mean, I'm not going to use $10 words and get confusing, but we're going to have to set this up in order to understand why Habakkuk is in deep weeds. So I need you to hang with me. Can you do that? Awesome. You guys are awake. First service wasn't. So we'll do some theology first. Habakkuk's first thing was he had a little bit of a misunderstanding about God's character. And that's understandable. I mean, when we get into pain, when we get into a a place where we're struggling, our theology of God, our understanding of God can get a little bit off. But it gets corrected really fast in these first 11 verses in the first chapter. And one of the things that gets cleared up for him is his perspective on God's character. God clears up right away this fact. God is not nice. That's hard to say, but it's true. Nowhere in Scripture does God lay out this idea that he's going to be nice. In fact, the word nice is never used in your Bible, ever. God doesn't claim to be nice. Part of the misunderstanding for us is that we read passages that say God is love. And in the translation from those words on the page into the thoughts of our mind, it gets a little bit twisted. We misunderstand that. We may not know or we may ignore other passages of Scripture that help us understand what the Bible means when it says God is love. And we tend to think it's saying God is nice. And so we start to expect a God who's well-mannered. We expect a God who plays well with others instead of daring to embrace the God who's actually described in the pages of Scripture who has a ferocious, wild, and jealous love. And our incomplete understanding of God's love prompts us to say things that aren't accurate. Things like, my God would never, and we fill in the blank with an inaccurate statement. Or we say, I just don't believe that a loving God would allow bad things to happen to good people. Or, if God is loving, he couldn't possibly send good people to hell. Our finite ability to comprehend God's infinite love limits our capacity for reconciling what we believe to be true about God's character with the problems of evil and pain that we see in this world. And so when we come to those chapters of confusion and suffering in our own lives, we tend to follow a path that either ignores God or ignores the problem in 
we close our eyes then and we shut out the pain. We skim through those chapters in our own life in the same way that we skim through those chapters in the pages of Scripture. Or sometimes we'll just simply respond with a pithy, hollow statement. Like, God must have his reasons. Or, someday we'll be thankful for this. Because we simply don't know anything else to say to reconcile our suffering in what we perceive to be true of God's character. Another way that our mistaken theology shows up is that when our faith is challenged, when the tough times come, we turn to God just like Habakkuk did here and ask, how long is this going to go on, God? Or why is this happening to me, God? Because our faith has been built around a core idea that God is here to help us be happy and fulfilled. Or God is here to solve our problems, which reveals the fact that we've reduced God to being a cosmic butler. He's here to serve our needs. And unless we read and embrace the whole story of Scripture, understand the whole image of God as it's laid out in Scripture, it's impossible for us to understand God's character in the midst of a disordered world. Many times we fall into the trap of failing to read the Bible as actual history of real messed up people who live in the same messed up world we live in. And instead, we approach it as if it's a fairy tale. You know, it's filled with perfect heroes and perfectly rotten villains where the bad guys always lose and the good guys always win and it all gets resolved really quickly. It just doesn't happen that way in the Bible or in real life. That's the predicament that we find Habakkuk in in the opening verses of the first chapter of Habakkuk. He is one of God's prophets. He is praying to God for a revival, a spiritual revival in Judah that will turn this situation around. He's devoting his whole life to this cause. He's all in. He couldn't be any more in. And in rapid fire succession, starting in verse 3, he lists six major problems that he's waiting for God to resolve. Injustice, wrongful suffering, destruction, violence, strife, and conflict. Then in verse 4, he basically says, God, here's the result of you not acting on these six problems in our world. The law is paralyzed, justice never prevails, and the wicked hem in the righteous. And because you're not dealing with those six problems, we have these three consequences. And if you want to make it really simple, God, here's the one result. Justice has been perverted in our world. And he kind of folds his arms and sits back to wait and hear what God's answer is going to be. You get the sense as you read this, he's prayed it before, don't you? He's got it nicely, neatly packaged, and he goes, okay, God, here it comes. It's a well-rehearsed conversation between Habakkuk and God, except it ceased to be a conversation because God's not responding. It's become more of a monologue that Habakkuk rehearses every single time he prays. God's not responding. My guess is, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you can identify with his experience. You had one similar. Because sometimes our prayers are met with silence. 
And those are difficult seasons to walk through. We wonder if God hears us. We wonder if He sees us. We question our ability to pray. Are we doing it right? Are we listening right? We wonder if our prayers are just hitting the ceiling and falling back to the floor. We hunger to hear anything from God, something, God. Just let me know that you're there. You don't even have to answer. That's where Habakkuk's living right now in this prayer. He's struggling between what he believes to be true about God and what he's experiencing in his life. God's not behaving as he expected him to. Did you ever feel like you'd get to a place in your life where you just look at God and go, you're not doing what I thought you'd do. You're misbehaving, God. It's kind of where he is. So from the very first words in this book, Habakkuk is unhappy, he's perplexed, he's frustrated. And so he loads up both barrels and he aims them at God. This isn't a sing-songy, saccharine sweet prayer. It's a gut-level, honest, even angry prayer. How long is it going to be before you listen to me, God? He can't understand what's going on around him or God's seeming indifference. If nothing else, in these first four verses, I find real comfort in Habakkuk's words. This down-and-dirty, gut-level, honest prayer. It's unedited. It's just the way it is. In 30 or so years of ministry, I've been in all kinds of situations with people. Church people, unchurched people. I've been in some really raw situations where people have faced some really hard things. Said things they never thought they'd say to a pastor. And almost without fail, as soon as the words escape their mouth, the next thing they say is, I'm sorry. Really? I've said some of those things myself to God and to other people. What I find really comforting in these four verses is the rawness of Habakkuk's prayer. And the fact that it's not followed up with Habakkuk apologizing for what he says to God, and that God never says, you need to get on your knees and ask forgiveness for that. God's got broad shoulders. The authenticity of his prayer is really comforting to me that I can go to God with what I'm feeling and my struggles, and he'll hear me. That's what he wants is an authentic relationship with us. Amazingly, in verse 5, God begins to answer. God says to Habakkuk, look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed, because I'm going to do something in your days you just wouldn't believe, even if I told you. Now, that's one of those verses that's cherry-picked out of Habakkuk. I've heard guys teach off of that passage, and alone it sounds really beautiful. It sounds really hopeful. It sounds amazing, doesn't it? I've heard it in sermons where people talk about the great things God's going to do in our lives and use that as a promise. Trust me, after you read what God says next, it's not a real hopeful verse in the short term. If you read what comes next, it seems like God didn't even hear Habakkuk's prayer. It's like God was watching TV or just not listening well, you know? Because Habakkuk is going to be surprised. 
we soon discover that God's instructions to look, to watch, to be shocked, to be amazed aren't words of rescue. They're words of warning to Habakkuk. God's plan to bring change and set wrong things right is not going to be good news to Habakkuk. Is he going to be amazed? Yes. But in a way that's going to leave him completely confused. God says to Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honor. Oh, goody. Understand that Habakkuk started off in a bad place. His world was characterized by violence, wickedness, disaster, conflict, conflict, and controversy. The bad guys were winning, and God was unaware or seemed to be unaware and disengaged from Habakkuk's situation. Habakkuk prayed for God to bring a revival. God answers, and the situation goes from bad to worse. God's answer is to bring in an invasion by the worst army that was on the earth at that point, the Babylonians. They were exponentially worse than any other country, and the people of Babylon were worse than the Israelites themselves. And God said, I'm going to let them win. And he didn't hide the horror that was coming. In fact, he was pretty explicit in the next few verses about just how bad it was going to get, how bad their character was, and what they were going to do. The Babylonians, if you read historical documents, were really well known for two things. They were known for their speed in conquering nations and their cruelty to the nations they conquered. I won't go into great detail, but suffice it to say that in 25 years, they went from being ruled by the Assyrians. In 25 years, they became the dominant force in all of Western Asia. They conquered everybody. In 25 years, that was unheard of. They conquered Egypt, who had been a world power for hundreds of years. In the final battle with Egypt, they pursued the last remnant of the Egyptian army on foot and on horseback for 150 miles and decimated them just to make a point. Point made. They conquered the Assyrians, who had been ruling them for decades in five years, overthrew them, decimated them, conquered them, trashed the city of Nineveh so badly that it couldn't even be found on a map. God said, having defeated the major world powers and securing control of the major trade routes, that the Babylonians would be able to mock kings and scoff at rulers. Historically, that's what they did. One example of their cruelty is spelled out in the Bible in 2 Kings 25 when the Babylonian army entered Jerusalem and captured the city. They also captured King Zedekiah and his sons as they attempted to flee, brought them back, and they forced Zedekiah to stand and watch as each of his sons was killed one at a time in front of him. And so that that would be the last memory that he had before they took him off to prison, they gouged out both of his eyes. They were a brutal, cruel army. 
God said, this is what you have to look forward to, Habakkuk. Your prayers have been answered. Yay. In this situation, it was God's choice. God said, I'm raising them up. It's my choice that the bad guys are going to win. It doesn't seem fair, does it? It's as though grace went missing when Habakkuk's prayers went wild. Sometimes it seems like God answers our prayers in a way that makes us wish he would have just stayed quiet. All of a sudden, silence becomes the sweetest sound we can imagine because the answer we hear takes our situation from bad to worse. We wonder if the wires between heaven and earth have gotten crossed somehow or if God is really who he says he is. We've prayed for God to show up. And our prayers have been answered not with silence, but with bad answers. We pray, and the cancer spreads. We pray, and our teenage daughter gets pregnant. We pray, and our spouse files for divorce. We pray for a raise, and we get a pink slip. Where is God? We wonder if things might have turned out better or if they would have at least just stayed the same if we had never prayed at all. So what do we do? What do we do when, like Habakkuk, the harder we pray, the worse things get? How do we process the moments when God's actions collide with our expectations? I feel a little bit like a TV show right now because I'm just going to tell you, you're going to have to come back for the next three weeks to get the full answer. (laughs) Because time won't permit me to give you the full answer that I can give you over the next three weeks. But let me give you a short answer because here's two of the principles that Habakkuk is going to learn over the rest of these three chapters we're going to look at. Here's just a couple of things he's going to have to learn. One, faith is seldom simple. To say we believe in God, that's one thing. But to really live out faith, to really have faith, real faith is lived out in the tough choices, the hard choices we have to make every day. Habakkuk screamed out at God's silence. He shouted accusations at God. He wanted to understand what appeared to be absolute injustice in a universe that faith said was under the rule of a sovereign God. He wasn't a fault-finding critic. He wasn't a negative skeptic. These were just honest questions of someone who was trying to follow and serve God. Here's a spoiler alert. It doesn't get any easier for Habakkuk in the next two and a half chapters. God's wisdom can be really confusing to us as human beings at times. Isaiah writes that. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We can't think his thoughts. We can't know his ways completely in our finite minds. For Habakkuk, these three short chapters we'll look at 
from the point his prayer begins, those three chapters cover 90 years in his life. And they cover for him a progressively more difficult understanding of faith. In the end, Habakkuk finds some real truth. He finds that we as human beings want to measure out and mete out justice in a very short time span. We feel like God has to act according to our limited schedule. And that God has to operate and agree with our evaluation of who is good and who is evil and what is good and what is evil. But in reality, God in his sovereignty chooses to act according to his timetable and his plan. And justice? Justice doesn't always work out the way we see it for every individual or even in our generation. That, that seldom leads to a simple faith. Second thing that Habakkuk is going to learn is that God's desire is ultimately to change our character, not to make us comfortable. I've been learning that lesson for more than 30 years, and I'm still not comfortable with it. And though Habakkuk cannot see it from where he sits right now, the calamity that's about to come on Judah will bring the spiritual revival that he's praying for. But first, first, God's people are going to be conquered by Babylon. It's going to be brutal. They're going to be taken into exile. They're going to have a hard road ahead of them. All the major buildings in Jerusalem, including the temple, are going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be left on top of the other. Be burned to the ground. And decades later, out of the ashes that are left, a revival is going to begin. But from the point where Habakkuk is praying, to the point where that revival is complete, is going to be more than a hundred and fifty years. That's not quite the quick fix Habakkuk was praying for. God's ways, they're not our ways. God's timetable, not our timetable. Faith is never simple. Character change is hard. But that's ultimately what God's about in your life and mine. I've always loved the C.S. Lewis series of books, The Chronicles of Narnia, and in it specifically The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The character Lucy is one of the main characters in that very first book in that series. And in her explorations into Narnia, she begins to uncover 
who this character Aslan is. And if you know the stories, you know that eventually she discovers that Aslan is a lion. And we know from reading the stories that Aslan represents God. But in that very first encounter where she discovers, as some of the characters are explaining to her, in the first encounter where she discovers that Aslan is a lion, she immediately asks the question, if he's a lion, is he safe? (laughs) To which our friends kind of chuckle and said, safe? Didn't you hear what we're telling you? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. I love that. I love that description of the God we love and serve. He's not safe, but he's good. He's not nice, but he is love. See, we serve a God who doesn't promise us safety from the agonies and the struggles of this life. But he does promise us that he is sovereign over all of this life. He doesn't promise to remove us from the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. But he does promise us, as we walk through it, he promises a love that is more extravagant and resolute than we could ever imagine. And those promises can help us hold on to a faith, even when it seems that faith has let go of us.